Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. I'm here today with Brian Kroger and Matt Nelson. They are the CEO and COO of Rise 8, a digital consulting company. And prior to that, they were early members of the Air Force's Kessel Run program. So we're excited to have them here today to talk about digital transformation and a lot more. Guys, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Thanks for having us. Happy to be here. Great. So the first thing I wanted to start out with was uh, Will Roper, who's the Air Force Acquisition Chief. He recently released a couple papers on digital acquisition and the digital trinity is what he calls it. So I just want to break that down and get your perspectives on each of these you know, three areas. And the first one that he outlines is own, share, and furnish the tech stack and its reference architecture. So what does that mean to you guys? That's a good question. I, I, it's funny because when he posted that, uh, a lot of people asked, what exactly do you mean, especially the word own? He, he talked about taking own the technical baseline into the next digital century. So, you know, if, if I'm loose with it, I, I would say what we're trying to get at here is the government needs to be able to make better tech decisions. I hope that it's not meant nor that government leadership is pushing towards literally owning as in gots, like we're going to gots our way down the uh, tech stack. I think that's pretty dangerous. Where, where do you draw that line? Should we start making our own chips when we're talking about cloud compute? Probably not. And for us, we like to talk about the value line. We, we talk about that quite often. And the value line is a moving target in an organization. As you grow and mature, the value line can be pushed farther and farther down, maybe someday in the future to the point where we are talking about chipsets. But at the outset, I would say we should be very careful about where we build versus buy versus rent in this, especially on the digital side of the house. And what I think is an admirable goal that he's pushing is making sure that the government can, especially as we're trying to do things like distributed command and control, all domain, seamlessly push applications out to wherever they're needed. And for that, that does require some level of ownership, at least over the configuration and being able to deploy infrastructure to the edge, deploy applications to the edge. But I think I I would caution, we can still use commercial technologies in that tech stack. And there's like a counter argument to this where the government tends to view things like lock-in as this boogeyman. And it's always vendor lock-in. There's many kinds of lock-in. A lot of times GOTS is the most locked-in thing that we have in our tech stack. And breaking down lock-in, I think, is another really important concept here. But if it's me, I say own all of the knowledge that you need to make good technical decisions. So going back to Dr. LaPlante's own the technical baseline, what he really meant there. And then we should own things that are above the value line. And today, if you're talking on the digital side, like software applications, I think we're at a level of maturity where the value line is drawn just below applications and data. And we're having like all these discussions about platforms, which are useful technologies, essential technologies. But to me, they're still below the value line. We should be working on getting our applications and data in order. And then as we mature in that area, the value line will start pushing its way down into the platform and maybe someday down into infrastructure. Yeah, 100% agree there. So like, 
to own the technical baseline, you or the tech stack in this case, first you got to understand what the tech stack is. Us within the DoD transformational space, we have to educate the community on what are the layers of the tech stack from the networking to the infrastructure, which is like the host environment, to the platform, which is mainly all about orchestration, and then your data and applications. So when you get a better understanding of the layers, then you can make informed decisions on each of those layers of how you're going to build a strategy around owning that. But what I really like about that whole, like owning that baseline is the shared piece. We should take a playbook from Conway's law, which says your software mimics the structure of your organization. So if we have a cloud one type of organization that's owning that shared infrastructure baseline, there's a lot of efficiencies that can be gained from that, which is awesome. So we have to start small. We have to realize that the AWS journey that Amazon took on from going from a tightly coupled architecture back in like the early 2000s to what we see today, like the poster child for microservices, took them three years to do that. And they owned all of their tech stack at the very beginning. They had all the teams. We don't have that. Like the DOD is primarily outsourcing IT right now. So for us, our journey is starting at a bigger hole than Amazon, but we have to start that journey somewhere. Yeah, and maybe to riff off that, one way that I would take this or I would advocate for if I were king for a day, I would push for, in fairness, this is what Kessel Run, Platform One, Kobayashi Maru, all have very similar goals here, all these Air Force software factories and, and Navy Black Pearl now. What we're trying to do, which I think is, is really powerful, is own GFE or, or have GFE, which doesn't necessarily mean own it in the traditional sense. It might be still that I, I buy a bunch of of software solutions and put them together, but everything below the value line. So if I'm going to go out to a Raytheon or a Lockheed and I want them to build me an app, I furnish them everything below the value line. And that's really powerful for a lot of reasons. It allows us to control the path to production, which historically has gotten in the way of a lot of vendors delivering software to the DoD. And the government now owns that. And we figured out how to shorten that. that allows capabilities to get out to the warfighter faster. It also allows interesting things like fly-offs where you know, now instead of doing, we, we do all these things in the labs that really aren't labs work, like traditional S&T work. Building an app isn't S&T work. That's not how we should use our big brains, in my mind. And we get out of this TRL problem that we used to have, where AFRL or somebody else goes and builds something and they build it on some tech stack that is not the production tech stack. And so then if we say, yeah, we want that capability, now we have this process of transitioning it. If we, if, if Dr. Roper's vision um, starts to get after that problem where we're providing a GFE tech stack that vendors can build on, we almost eliminate the transition problem. And then we can start reallocating S&T resources back into looking out into the future, into the horizon three. So I think that's a really powerful aspect of what he's proposing. And he's already made pretty good strides in that with platform one, Kessel Run, Kobayashi Maru. Yeah, just to play on that is then you turn these big, huge sigil deliveries right now that are hundreds of pages long, which are a bunch of like source code software description documents or like getting source code in a CD, those become a thing of the past. And now you can focus your engineering efforts on not just reviewing like static sigils or static documents, but you're actually like using your engineering energy into what matters. And that's like building actual working software or sort of any sort of working capability that you can, because you're not becoming just like an oversight 
person at that time, you now are becoming part of the delivery process in and amongst itself. Yeah, I'd like to, Brian, if you could just go a little bit deeper into the value line concept, because I haven't really heard about that. And I guess my simple takeaway, my simple idea of what we're talking about with the tech stack is we have the infrastructure as a service, which is like the cloud, and then the platform as a service, which is like what you said, like orchestrating the deployment in a continuous way to various platforms, whatever the applications are. And then you have like the application layer, which is like the software as a service. And I guess when I think about what Roper's saying, usually I think he's talking about own, like government owning the baseline around the cloud and the platform that's outsourced ultimately to industry, but they are orchestrating that. And then like the software as a service is something that they outsource or should it be the other way around? Cause when I think about like the Kessel run story, it seemed like you guys started with the software as a service and then build out from there. So is that kind of what, what are you getting at with the value line there? And then on what I just described? Yeah, we think in terms of value streams, and that's very different in a mission model versus a business model. So DOD is a mission model. There's no profit motive. So it gets a little bit tricky to talk about, like how do you quantify things like targeting applications, saving lives, or having lower error rates, those kinds of things. They're hard to quantify in the traditional terms that we think of, which are dollar value type metrics. But there still very much is a value stream at play. And Everything that we do, like users don't care about software. They don't care about platforms. They don't care about code. In fact, all of those things are actually liabilities in a very traditional sense. You could call them actually debt. The real instrument that we're getting after is some sort of value. And so we're taking on that liability to provide a value to the user. So when we look at that value that we're trying to provide, we have to ask where are our customers at and where are our employees at and our ability to deliver that value to them. And what are the first class concerns? So when you look at like a, a Netflix driving out efficiencies at the infrastructure and networking layer that decrease processing transaction times by milliseconds, that nets them millions of dollars. That playing around at that level is above the value line for them. If they make a change there, it nets them a huge amount of value. For us, don't get me wrong, we, we need to get there. So it is in the future, but it's so far into the future that it's not a first class problem. Warfighters laugh when we start talking even about things like AI and ML, which should be table stakes. It's unfortunate we are where we are, but we are very far behind. And so for us to say things like platform and infrastructure are where we're going we're gonna to invest a lot of resources, to me seems silly. We have warfighters out in the field who are still using whiteboards. You know, like, th there's such a gap there. The value that we can deliver them, they just want an app that can process the data that they need. Now, I will admit that does get a little bit tricky in the DoD space, especially when you start going into classified networks, because it creates these hard walls that break traditional cloud models. But to go back to your question about the, the, as a service, where we want to outsource, in my opinion, is actually at the infrastructure and platform layers. And where we want to insource, to put it more simply, you should insource anything that's above the value line. If it's above the value line, it's a strategic differentiator for you, and you should own it. You shouldn't outsource it. And so today, I think we, as we try to build up more airmen, soldiers, sailors, marine coders, they should be focused above the value line, building mission differentiating capabilities at the application and data layer. SaaS, I think SaaS should be pushed into like business systems, into collaboration tools, those types of things, but not mission applications. Those should all be 
built um, by government folks or at least government led, even if we're going to, you know, use contractors to fill out because we, we don't have enough developers, bottom line. When we started Kessel Run, there were, I think, 200 software developers left in the Air Force on the military side. And we had government civilians that were coders, but they were mostly at the maintenance groups. So they were doing a lot of like watching vendors code or maintaining really old systems. So talented people, don't get me wrong, but they're talented on technologies that, that are a little bit outdated just by virtue of the mission that they've been assigned, no fault of their own. And so taking those people and starting to get them spun up on modern development practices and aiming them above the value line is where I think we should be focused. I, I think I love platforms. Platforms are really important, but again, they are below the value line. So I think all these conversations and resources, it's like a holy war that we have going on. And I'm just sitting here, we're talking about all the wrong things. We should be talking about how to develop, create a developer culture with a growth mindset and all these things that allow software development to be both fast and secure and reliable. Yeah, to piggyback on that, it's like the as a service model that's so popular right now is a big deal because reducing complexity is a big deal. Like software is so much more than just software, especially inside the DOD space, like somewhere within the acquisition bureaucracy is going to bite you. So you need to spend your mental energy and your focus on what you can have the ability to change and what your talents have the ability to change. And right now with this journey, I would say that we're on, this is a football game. We're on like the five yard line. We've got 95 yards to go. till we like meet that Dr. Roper bending the spoon memo. I think we can get there. I think it's a great vision, but we have to make smart strategic plays and slowly chip away at deepening our knowledge of what the, what, a DOD based tech stack looks like. And we have to start at the top and then work our way down to all the way down to the networking layer. Yeah, that's interesting because when I was talking to someone out of the Navy, Sean Lavelle, he also framed it. He has this idea of software defined tactics and the sailors and airmen or whatever, they like those at the edge that are in the mission itself, they can do like these lower level. A lot of times it's just using like standard techniques and get a lot of value out of deploying applications they're closest to it that feedback's probably the tightest so it seemed and he kind of walked it back yeah the company should be doing the very heavy infrastructure so it's interesting to get your point of view on that part because when i was listening to nick shalon who's the of course the chief software officer he he i guess did a tour of spacex and he was saying like they could do with 50 developers what would take 2500 in the department of defense because they have the enterprise tool guys and they don't have to rebuild the whole stack, every single thing. And so that's where it seemed like to me, there was, oh, this, there's a huge economies and like owning the technical baselines, like synonymous with cloud one and platform one. But you guys are saying that there's also a different flow, a flow from the bottom where owning the technical baseline means just being involved in the program and and the applications to some degree. Well, I I would say it's, providing the tech stack as GFE up to the value line so that everybody has some sort of common, it doesn't have to be one, it could be multiple platform offerings, multiple infrastructure offerings, but common in the sense that they allow you to achieve the the same results, but they should be tailored to the operational environments, right? Like deploying to a Navy ship is very different than deploying to an army base than a forward uh, operating base and then a, a CONUS Air Force base. So just to, I do want to clarify too, is it's important how involved the government is in that decision because uh, you mentioned cloud one, right? They use primarily AWS and Azure. So they're using commercial solutions, commercial cloud offerings. 
And what's important there is that as we build on top of those, I, I don't deny that vendor lock is not an issue. There's many types of lock-in. Vendor lock-in is one of them, and it can be really bad. I would say the boogeyman that we have in our minds, almost everybody will say, if I ask somebody like, what's the worst example of vendor lock-in, they'll usually name Oracle. And the, the running joke is they have more lawyers than software developers. <laughs> That's true IP law. That's problematic and probably not fair to them either, by the way, being a little bit facetious. But the idea there is there's also technical lock that comes in with vendors and and that's not associated with ip and legality like literally now the contractor owns my data this type of lock-in is i used an aws service and so instead of building it myself i used aws now if i want to move off of that the work that i forewent before i now have to do or if i'm going to switch to another vendor i have to do some sort of migration cost and nick has made some really fair points about and there are real examples of this of that migration cost being so silly from like AWS to Azure to Google Cloud Platform that it basically is the same as IP lock-in. And he's right. And what's incumbent upon the government is, again, I think we should generally outsource a lot of things below the value line. I can't neatly say that it exists in that one slice of the stack, like, all right, platform and below. There are some things beneath platform that are still differentiated for us by virtue of how we construct our networks, right? We have Zipper, TS, SAP environments. There are all these things that drive complexities. But for everything that we do outsource, the government role is to ensure that we don't get locked into those technologies. I do think that's really important. But yeah, if, if we just go at the face of it and say, okay, if we just said that platform's not driving out a lot of mission value necessarily for the customer, they're at a point where they need apps. They're not at a point where they've got really great apps and they need to reduce latency by 10%. They're just like, I need an app. Like I'm using a whiteboard and a grease pencil. Then when we're at that point, we need to invest most of our resources in rebuilding our horizon one. We've gotten to the point, I call this the zombies of horizon zero. We've let our horizon one capabilities, the things that are supposed to be producing our, our profits as it were, our real mission differentiators. We've let them go so long in sustainment that they're no longer even horizon one. They're not producing value today. I just got off a call with a group that's doing an analysis of one of our clients from a value stream mapping perspective. And they said, not only are you not continuously improving your mission capability, your mission capability has been degrading for the last 10 years and it's continuing to degrade at an alarming rate. He's not talking about software. He's talking about the actual war fighting capability. And uh, he ties it to software. Software has created this vicious cycle of actually degrading the mission. So people a lot of times assume the software is not being a force multiplier for the mission. It's much worse than that. Software is actually causing us into this vicious downward spiral of decreasing mission capability. So I don't want to spend, look, the government, as much as somebody's going to say, like, this isn't true. The government has plenty of money to solve this problem. What they lack is software personnel. And so until we flip that, we should use our money to outsource things below the value line. And for the small amount of software people that we do have, we should have them focused on missions and data. That's my general position. It's not that I don't want to work on platforms. It's right now I'm forced with the you know 500 software developers in the Air Force to choose where to place them. I'm putting them in apps and data. And I think that's really important. Yeah. <laughs> That's super interesting, and I'm glad uh, I was able to get you guys' opinions there because that's been something that I think is incredibly important, just looking back historically and seeing that kind of degradation of in-house, owning that technical baseline, wherever the baseline, or what you mean by the baseline, but just having that, that competence. It seems like it's a paradox, but 
I think it actually helps the government contract better. So it actually makes markets in a way work better when the government doesn't try to outsource everything and just pretend like it can be a contracts manager with that contextual build knowledge to some degree. So we've been spending a lot of time on just the very first of Roper's points. So I want to move on to the second one, which is warp from the tech stack to the edge effortlessly. So what does that mean? Yeah, so that's all about like automation and parity between your dev environment and out to the edge. And you got to have inside your developer environment, operational relevant image of what that tech stack looks like out at the edge. And then you can really go fast to deploy capabilities, knowing, hey, here are my constraints because size, weight, power is for the software world is down to number of virtual CPUs, your data and memory. So being able to understand what is out at the edge, being able to automatically build up a production-like development environment that mimics what is out there to the edge and then having all the infrastructure as code, configuration as code and pipeline to help you get out to the edge quickly. But then you have to flip that statement the other way around too. You need to seamlessly get the stuff that's out at the edge back into the tech stack. And that's been a relatively like hard lift for the DOD, right? Like the data syncing between your mothership and what is out at the edge is not trivial. There's services now that are coming online, like AWS Data Sync, and I know the Navy's been looking at like the data transfer as a service that they're building in-house. So there's a lot of interesting technologies around making sure that not only when you're flipping the switch and going to pure the edge, but then turning that switch back on and having that eventual consistency with your data, that is really like the biggest hurdle there. But I think like we're making strides, but the first thing we got to do is the first stride is making sure the developers have the same parity and then you can really like accelerate that problem or the solution to that problem. Yeah, I think, again, sequence really matters to me. You have to solve first class problems first. And to me, edge, again, I think the problem is we're so far behind and we know it that we just want to jump. We want to say, oh, we're just going to, I've heard somebody say, we're going to rip the bandaid off and we're going to jump straight into all this stuff. And that's just not how it works. It just, it, it doesn't work. These things are all a journey and they build on one another. Now that doesn't mean if you've never done computing, you should start over in the mainframe era. But one thing I would call attention to is uh, the, there's this example of Gal's Law. So if you're familiar with Gal's Law, John Gal, he wrote this book called Systematics. He's, uh, he's like the Voltaire of systems engineering theory. He's great. But he says that complex systems are invariably found to have formed from small, simple working systems. And the inverse proposition is also true. Complex systems can't be built from scratch. You have to start over with working simple systems. And there's this problem that we have in our minds related to that first thing that I said is we have so much baggage and experience with things not integrating at the end that we assume that you have to design the whole system up front. That's the problem. So if we want edge computing, we have to think about it now. And that was true in the era of waterfall development. And there's this really great video that I recommend to everybody. It's called Crossing the River by Feeling the Stones. Simon Wardley gives this talk. He's given it all over. But the version that I really like is Go-To Conference. So I recommend to the audience, check that out. In it, he talks about applying old architectural practices from a bygone era to the current era and how dangerous that is and how it always fails. And so this is a perfect example of that is now with continuous delivery as something that's available to us, meaning 
if I botch an integration between my app and your app, I can fix that and have it out in an hour. It used to take me a quarter to do that, maybe, if we're lucky. Probably would take me a year to fix it. That's why we were so obsessed with getting everything right when it launches. Now we're in a different era where we can think about iterating. And so likewise, just like one example that I'll use, I sat down and talked with a bunch of people that were involved in the systems design for Alice, the uh, F35 automated logistics information system. And they were explaining to me why the system was built the way that it is. And they, they kept talking about, oh, we designed it so that it could work at all these nodes and it could be offline for this certain amount of time. And they kept talking about how they designed the system to be able to work offline. And I said, in, in all of that architecture that you did, you ended up with a system that doesn't work online. It, it's this weird paradox of, of we try to design these complex systems and they fail, just like Gaul's Law tells us they will. And so I take more of a cynic, uh, cynics approach to Matt, maybe. I, I would say that um, pushing things out to the edge is in things like platform portability and, and all these concepts, they're not magic. They are engineering feats. They take massive amounts of engineering talent to, to be able to create things like, to say, infrastructure agnostic, platform agnostic, portability. Those things are all the results of engineers investing thousands and thousands of hours. So I do want to get to the edge, but before we get to the edge, I think we need to solve the first class problem, which is we can't seamlessly push across the cloud. Like we, we still have a cloud problem. Meaning even within a single environment, it's really difficult to do a true DevOps model in an IL-5. Platform One is solving this to a degree with their cloud native access point. I know Army is building their own cloud native access point, but the way that we've constructed the BCAPs makes it really hard to do DevOps just at IL-5, IL-4 even, actually. Now when you start talking about pushing seamlessly up to Sipper and up to TS uh, and being able to deploy workloads at, at various classification levels, that's broken. So if we can't even do that inside of a commercial cloud, I, I think to start talking about pushing to the edges is, is, again, it's an important problem. And whenever I say this, people are like, oh, that's ridiculous. We're, we're, we have to have edge. Yeah, we do. But to get there is a big journey and we need to invest resources, prioritize resources. Sequence matters. We need to fix the problem that we have today, which is just like Alice, you should be able to work online before you try start trying to solve the offline problem. Make sure your system actually works before you start thinking about how to design it to be offline for long periods of time. So likewise, if we're going to push out to the edge, we should make sure that we can work centrally first. So if I break that down real quick, it's make sure you can at least get applications out and deployed. Even if you're just sending a disk over, get that process working first and then go for the more complex, elaborate ways of deploying things and build out in like those types of cycles. So get your foundations right, build out from there. Yeah, definitely. And and I don't think that that goes against what Dr. Roper is saying. He's presenting a vision and end state. So I'm all in on his vision, the right vision. But when people start interpreting this and saying, what actions are we going to take in the next fiscal year? I'm seeing people make a lot of really bad resource prioritization decisions. So that, that's where my concern jumps in. And I just want to tell people, make sure that you can do central like cloud compute before you start working on edge computing. So let's move on to the third one, which always feels like it's a little bit separate from these last two, which is e-create before you activate or just digital engineering in general. Is that, do you guys interact with uh, digital engineering a lot or is that, does that feel like it's like a separate issue, but related potentially? 
we don't deal with it as much because we do focus primarily on software. I mean, maybe those are software challenges too, but they're software to solve a hardware problem. I, again, I think the vision is incredible. The industry is already showing a, a lot of progress in this area and we, we need to be following suit. And I think he's right about the first step, which is having that GFE tech stack that we can have as a common environment for people to do this e-creation. I will say creating the kinds of models to run those simulations, right? So if you look at a flight simulator, the flight simulator is running on data that it's been given. But when you talk about e-creating, you're now asking it to generate the data as well and then run it. In other words, if we're going to make a simulator for an F-35, we go out and collect a bunch of data about how all of the aerodynamics of the F-35 work, and then we plug that into the algorithms. Now we don't get to go test that on an airframe. We're asking the computer, this hypothetical system that I designed, what would the aerodynamics be? Generate that data for me, and then I'll plug it into the simulator. And so I think, again, I, I think that's an area for large investment. And I hope that people realize that's what they have to invest in. Not the algorithms that run the simulator, but the algorithms that come up with the data to feed the simulator. Yeah, and I think like for the longest time, like training and modeling and simulation within the DOD has almost been treated like a second-class citizen. Totally. So you have to make it a first-class citizen if you're ever going to get to this e-create vision. And in experimenting with companies that have already started to crack this nut, like a Unity or an Unreal Gaming Engine that are already building that into their own training and modeling platforms that you could leverage as a uh, customer on that platform and really starting to understand what is out there in the commercial space that we can, you know, provide those same patterns for our DOD customers, because we're in a mindset right now where training is always an afterthought and the simulator is always an afterthought. If you want it to be the primary like uh, litmus test for building applications or building hardware, you're really going to have to make that your first class citizen. So it'll be interesting to see if there's any sort of software factories that get set up that are mainly owning that problem. That would be something that I'd be excited or interesting to uh, get behind. An interesting thing I just thought of as Matt was saying all this too, is on all three of these questions, there's a very similar theme. You think, and we've talked a lot about this memo internally. We are all in on the vision. He's a visionary. He's right, especially this one. Like this would be a game changer. E-create before you activate. The amount of cost savings that we could do with, with virtual fly-offs of real platforms getting to that level of data integrity is, is no small feat, but once we get there, it unlocks so much. But what's interesting going back to the idea of owning the technical baseline, the original Dr. LaPlante's vision is Dr. Roper puts out these visions and to, to get there, we need these strategies and we need these roadmaps and he doesn't provide those. And rightfully, that's that's not his lane, right? He, he's supposed to be driving the service forward with vision strategy to a degree, but when we start getting to road mapping, then it's all these people underneath him that have to figure out how to prioritize resources to achieve his vision. And to be fair, Dr. Robert, I've seen him, he goes into these areas because I think he knows what I'm about to say is true. Maybe he would disagree. I don't know. I shouldn't be so presumptuous. But the, the people charged with carrying out these visions don't have the technical baseline they need to make good decisions about what to do first and what to do next. So that's where we get this malinvestment of resources. People come up with these great visions and, and even good strategies. And then all of a sudden people are like, all right, let's go all in on building infrastructure. So no, that's not where we should be investing our resources. So 
I, I think before all of this, when I read his memo, like the thing that stands out to me the most is we need to invest a lot more in people and the technical competency of those people. And that usually just gets lip service. We, we spend all this time talking about all these exciting things like tech stacks and e-creating and everything else. And like we're leaving all the people behind. Who are the people that are going to do this? And when I re- first read that memo, I got the feeling this is awesome. But the first thing we need to do is really look at ourselves in the mirror and look at the current condition of the state of our union when it comes to this digital ecosystem that we're in and slowly make smart, informed decisions on gradually involving that ecosystem. Like there's a, there is an exponential power in continuous small wins. And you have to start by getting a solid understanding of what your current conditions are and I think the first thing that I would look at is, okay, we have a lot of legacy. How are we going to do transformation or some sort of anti-corruption layer to basically get rid of that legacy so we can basically remove that ball and chain and start this modernization process where we're not having a bunch of like maintenance officers within the Air Force. When I say maintenance officers, like a lot of the a lot of the users of DOD software turn into maintenance officers because they're maintaining the software that they use and they're also doing their mission. So we have to get rid of that like burden to the, the customer, to the warfighter and allow them to just love the software that they have. And to do that, you have to start with small wins on the current condition. So that's the big issue right now with the budget levels. And so do you, I'll just pivot on that do you guys have some kind of like theory of force structure change it seems like you're saying if we innovate within some of these big areas like sustainment able to like reduce cost and manpower we can reinvest that into the future is that kind of your theory or like how would you frame like a theory of force structure change yeah going back to i mentioned that assessment earlier working with the gold rat group i won't, I won't talk about the client who they were and some of the specifics but the Goldrat group, of course, Goldrat wrote The Goal. I don't know if you're familiar. Really great book about, about value streams and, and how to eliminate constraints or bottlenecks in a value stream. The issue that we run into is it requires usually an initial upfront investment to unblock the flow. But then when you do, there's a huge ROI on the back end. And when I think of force structure changes, when I think in the digital age, everybody is moving towards this. Banks insurance companies, retailers, everybody where they're hiring more software developers than they are bank tellers or insurance agents. And people get really nervous when, in fact, my tagline used to always be transforming the DOD into a software company that wins wars. And people are like, oh, we're not going to be a software company. They envision, I'm thinking, I'm talking about like coders are going to be fighting the war. It's not the case at all. It's still going to be tanks, planes, ships, but they're powered by software. And if they're powered by software, we're going to have a, a lot less humans in the loop and a lot more humans building software. And to get to that point, yeah, we have to invert the force structure. I, I think we, we really need to invest and it can't be a silo. Like we're going to have cyber command or we're going to have a cyber force. I think we just need a lot of software developers, just like we have a finance troop, like a software troop should be considered a force enabler. They aren't the war fighting capability, although I, Sometimes we blur the lines on those, but certainly in cyber command, when you start talking about offensive and defensive cyber, yes. But when we're talking about software support to all the domains, no, they are force enablers and we should have a lot of them in every service. 
the shared services model that's inside of Dr. Roper's paper is a good starting point for structures, right? The as a service model, if the government can figure out how to be just as good as a service provider as the AWSs and the Azures and the pick your pass service provider option for the, on the platform side, we can then create a force structure where we have a shared enterprise services model that the government owns. And like I said, it took AWS three years to get there. So I'm hoping in three years, like we have the as a service model that the government owns and they patch and maintain it and they support it with the best SLAs in the industry, the service level agreements in the industry, just as competitive as anybody else. But to get there, you have to have that force structure. And there's a lot of exponential efficiencies that can be gained by that kind of approach. So it's one less thing that all the program offices have to worry about. It's one program office. They become the experts at that tech stack layer. So I think from a force structure perspective, like using Conway's law to have your organization mimic the way you structure your software. So I think that's a good starting point. Yeah. One of the things I was just listening to Roper at his ask me anything and he breaks apart the requirements approach from like an opportunity approach. And it seems like a lot of what you guys are saying is you need to be on the opportunity approach side where you start out, field things that make sense, grow them into that exponential loop. And then they become complex through that filtering process, which is competitive. And it just seems everything we do, and I think what Roper's trying to get at is moving from a project focus to a, like a people focus way of thinking about acquisition because all of our acquisition systems, they just focus on what is the project, presuming you know people higher up in, in the, the hierarchy, in the staffs, in the oversight can actually like make those judgments very early on as to what will or what will not work. But all of our focus is on like the project and then the life cycle of the project and all of this kind of all these kinds of waterfall talk. So recently the Department of Defense put out the adaptive acquisition framework and the software acquisition pathway just dropped in October 2020. And so I'm wondering they're talking about minimal viable products and then iterating after that and value assessments and all this kinds of stuff. I just like to see what's your guys' hot take on the new software acquisition pathway, the DODI 5000. Eight, seven. Yeah, I think it's a great first step, man. I'll, I'll break it down into the pros and cons of what I think the pathway is and the for the pros, right? Like it enables us to really understand how to do user-centered design, user experience, and understand what it takes to build software in an incremental way. And that's what the whole paper is all about. But it's a double-edged sword. We have to really get good and strong on how to do user-centered design and develop requirements based off of that process. I've been an acquisition officer for 14 years, and if I had a quarter for every time the acquisition community blamed bad requirements is the reason why that the system's not working, I'd be a rich man. So you can't just on overnight flip the script and say, hey, you don't have that excuse anymore that the requirements are bad. We're gonna give you the opportunity to talk with the warfighter to do true user-centered design. And the whole, that process is going to be great if we understand that discipline and learn that discipline well, but we have to complement user-centered design with some sort of enterprise model that understands the current conditions at the enterprise level. The one like negative that I have on the software acquisition pathway is that 
it's tailored for a single application to get out into a production-like environment. But it doesn't have a lot of discussions or governance or guidance on how to turn that like single application into a systems of systems and do end-to-end integration tests for a suite of applications that is solving an overall enterprise problem. So you have to complement the enterprise with with practices like domain-driven design and value stream mapping and really under decomposing like the one thing that DOD has been really good at in the past couple of years is documenting their mission threads. What is that core mission of the DOD? Like they have all of those in well-defined mission threads. You can use that as your anchor point for the software acquisition pathway to understand what little nugget or what little thing that you're going to go after and just accelerate from there. So I think it's a great first start, but we really got to complement that pathway with understanding user-centered design and really understanding where our software pieces fit in the bigger puzzle. Ready for a cynics take? <laughs> yeah, go go for it. I, I do agree. It's, it's a good first step, and they took a lot of lessons learned from Kessel Run and Platform One, Kobayashi Maru, all these folks. So I can't complain there. And the swap study. Overall, I love the swap study and, and all the things the Defense Innovation Board's been putting out. So it builds on that. I guess I, it's not really a critique of the document so much as uh, understanding that you know, scaled agile framework, for instance, gets a bad rap a lot of times. Like, oh, it's, it's just waterfall repackaged. And um, certainly that's how the implementation goes most times. But I don't think that's a critique of safe so much as the people that adopt safe. It's certainly the one that's of all the, the agile frameworks, the one that gets after the most amount of detail when it comes to scaling and complexity, which makes it, when you look at it, it looks like the way you used to do business. And so a lot of people that don't want to actually change, choose something like safe, and then they don't change, go figure. And likewise, I'm seeing a lot of people, clients and adjacent clients that are looking at the software acquisition pathway, and it's just a, a, a you know, lipstick on waterfall. I'll, like one example is the minimum viable product is the most abused term in the DOD. It, it drives me nuts. And, and Adam and I, in the early days, we were the ones going everywhere talking about MVP. So I mean, I'm like, this is a self-critique a little bit, but it doesn't get after the real problem. Uh, the real problem is that we don't understand our value streams. Matt said we do a good job of documenting mission threads. I think maybe that's true in terms of the data is all there, but to me, a good job means that it's concise or maybe I would say pithy. It's easy to consume. If I'm down at a product team level, just the famous Kennedy story of the guy sweeping the, the space center. Uh, he's, what do you do here? Is rocket ships go to the moon or whatever he said, something like that is you need to be able to connect the little things that you're doing to this big picture. And if you can't do that, then that's where all of these things like architecture review boards and all of the B2C2 WGs, that's where they start to come into play. It's because people don't have context. When people lack context, we have to lead with control. The new model is freedom and responsibility. In a DevOps world, you lead with context, not control. And we are severely lacking in context. And so we need to spend a lot more time, in my mind, reforming the JSIDs process and not just circumventing it, because to Matt's point, what becomes problematic here is this is very tailored towards like single applications. And as soon as you start trying to do more complex things, you need a lot more context. And in our effort to move away from something like JSIDs, we've almost swung the pendulum too far in the other direction where I see people trying to build complex systems 
and their approach is overly simplistic. They have none of the context they need to actually build the warfighting capability that they're charged with. And you end up with a lot of like really ad hoc solutions that don't fit together. And believe me, that's not to say that Agile can't be scaled. I think it absolutely can. To scale it, you need more context. Like Agile works at a small scale when teams have all the context they need to make decisions. If you want to build against bigger and bigger problems, you need more and more context for those teams. So that's where I think the investment needs to lie. And instead of getting after that, they've basically told people ignore the JSONs process and talk directly with end users. User-centered design is an important part of the problem, but so is system design. So we're like walking away from system design and domain-driven design. And as much as I would say the biggest problem we used to have is nobody talked to the users, there's a danger in going too far to the other direction and and talking too much at the lowest level of the organization and not understanding the big picture. So I would advocate for both. And and I just want to say MVP then turning into minimum viable capability release is is a really bad anti-practice. That would be my one critique of the paper. And they don't define it in there in fairness to them. They left it open, which I usually like. But again, going back to the fact that we don't have the, the people that understand the technical baseline to make good decisions about this stuff. The way that they're defining it is you can't make that release until it meets all of my requirements. Like it's a minimum viable capability for it to be a minimum viable capability. It has to have all these things and it's just a new spec list. And instead I would argue that we should think of every release as a net value release. So if I'm able to release like at Kessel run, you could release every day. If you wanted to, most teams just pick a day of the week. Like we're going to, we're going to release on this day and they do that every week. The user should be making decisions of, is this net value to me? Not does it do these 20 things, but is it better than it was yesterday? The answer is yes, we should release it. And we, we shouldn't MVCR instead of being like minimum viability, which becomes a gateway to pushing my software to the user. Instead, it should be an objective. Like as we, we advocate a lot for objectives and key results make that an objective and tie it to funding. So eventually one of my iterations has to hit that objective. If it doesn't, I'm going to struggle to get my funding. I'm going to come back to the growth board in a venture capital world, or I'm going to come back to uh, the PEO and I'm going to say, Hey, I want more money. And he's going to say, did you hit that minimum objective that I gave you? And I think that's perfectly acceptable. What I don't want though, is somebody saying you can't deploy that to the user because it doesn't do these 20 things. The question is, is it better than it was yesterday? If I made the world a better place for the user and for the overall warfighting capability, I should be able to push that to production. It doesn't matter if it met some arbitrary list of requirements. Yeah, I think that was incredibly well said there. I think both of you guys are pointing also to what I was talking about with respect to the project focusedness of it. You're saying like, well, this whole thing presumes that there's like a project and then we're going to have to do this minimum capability. And it almost looks like a little waterfall process. Again, I still need a life cycle cost estimate, which can take 210 days. And then you have a, a, num- a number of those kinds of same types of analyses up front, rather than thinking about the systems of systems, how they integrate, interoperate. I think of it more like having a portfolio with people who have the initiative to make choices within that portfolio and within like a value stream mapping, like some kind of common objective that's understood at an aggregate level, but not at a detailed specification level and allow them to use their knowledge to bring about better results. And as long as you have the context to understand that this thing is superior or better improving, then it should still get money. Whereas if you don't think it's meeting that threshold and you have competing priorities. So it's like that kind of evolutionary 
in the wild ecosystem rather than the very reductionist approach where I just have these little blocks of projects. Once you start them, they go on forever and then they all aggregate into like linearly into this system of systems. So I love that context versus control. And if we can just get the oversight committees and like agencies out there to start thinking about that, I don't know if they have been thinking about that and talking about that, but I think that's like at the base of what you guys are talking about. And one of the things that the new software acquisition pathway does is it actually brings in these value assessments. So there still seems to be some waterfally kinds of language in there, but then there's also, they're talking about minimum viable product, all that, maybe it's just a buzzword, but can you just break down value assessments as a measure of outcomes versus adherence to plan? Why is that so important? This gets into why user-centered design is, is important. In acquisitions, traditionally, we've built to a spec and we declare victory if we meet the specification and we never check if we were right, the specification is going to provide value to the warfighter. And in fact, when we look historically, there have been plenty of systems that have deployed that met the spec that users will say, doesn't allow me to do my job or it doesn't allow me to do my job the way I'm supposed to. The value assessment is really important because at some point we should go and check that the thing that we built does the thing that it was supposed to do. And in software, people will counter back and say, oh, we do that. That's part of the process. But it's, it's not actually. When we go to do tests, like operational tests, those aren't really run by the user community. They're run by test community and they're running test cards against the spec again. And that's not universally true. There are certainly some operational test organizations and, and usually they're isolated to certain communities that do a really good job with this. But then they're at a loss because when they do report deficiencies, they don't get fixed anyways. Tying it back to value assessments, two things that I think are really important, establishing IT performance metrics, software delivery performance metrics. So I'm a big fan of Dora. They're super simple. Some people would say they're oversimplified and down the road, I'd love to get to a more comprehensive thing like the flow framework that TaskDot puts out, which- What is Dora? Can you just break that down for us? Oh yeah, Dora is the DevOps research and assessment organization. They were working for Puppet and then it uh, went over to Google. So now they put out a report every year called the State of DevOps Report. And they have tons and tons of data on DevOps. And they've isolated scientifically, like uh, Nicole Forsgren is a data scientist. And so she's identified these constructs that are direct contributors to certain aspects of organizational performance. And she groups those into these five proxy metrics that uh, will give you a good indication of your software delivery performance. So their lead time as measured from commit to live in production, deployment frequency, mean time to restore, change fail rate, and availability. So the first two are about speed, the second two are about stability, uh, and the last one being primarily about availability. And so the idea there is there's that balance between speed and stability. And usually in acquisitions, we've thought that there's a trade-off between those two. But what they've actually found in that data is there's actually a, a mutually reinforcing loop between those. Organizations are able to achieve both speed and quality and availability all at the same time. It breaks this idea of the iron triangle. <laughs> and so I think it's really important to actually measure those things, on, including on Kessel Run, Kobayashi Maru, Platform One. I want them all to put their metrics out there on the table. The problem is we don't really have a good transparent way to collect these metrics in an automated way. It's like very self-reported. And we talk about customer obsession a little bit here when we talk about user-centered design. There's this other problem called Pentagon obsession. And in an environment where you can lie with impunity and resources are based on those, 
then what you get is, is people that uh, are obsessed with getting funding from the Pentagon and they do dishonest things to do it. That's not an indictment of anybody. It's an organizational structure that's set up around that. It's incentivized. You get what you incentivize. And I think if we could create an automated way to collect things like the Dora metrics, and then one other thing, which is we often refer to it as the one metric that matters. It's from the book, uh, Lean Analytics. What they talk about in your value stream at any given time, a product should have one objective that they're focused on related to the value stream and moving the needle on increasing the value in that value stream. And so that would be the, the value assessment that we should be doing is if we said we set out to reduce the amount of time it takes to process a target, we should be measuring that and giving funding out based on people's ability to move that needle. Value is the other side of that coin is that feedback and especially on the performance side, right? A lot of the existing software just doesn't have those performance metric feedback in real time because they got that through an OT test and that was the one time that they had to prove the performance measures of the system. But now you have to prove it during these value assessments and the software acquisition pathway almost on a continuous basis, like every single day. And the only way you're going to be able to do that is through enforcing all applications to have telemetry inside of their app that shows what value they're driving towards. So you can make informed decisions without having to do like a pretty heavy lift of doing a lot of backend analysis. You should want to see that data. The more data that your application produces, the better, because especially around performance, right? Because then you can really understand what are the, what are your crown jewels? What are the ones that are really making a difference? And that's what like commercial industry is investing in. A lot of their apps already have that data like baked into the system and you don't have to do any sort of manual test cards to, to determine how well the applications are performing. So we need to get to that state too, where some sort of feedback mechanism doesn't get treated as low hanging fruit. It should be treated as something that's an inherent must have inside of a system. Yeah. And I, I think the word value should always be defined too. value. Like how does value relate to cost? Value is performance divided by cost, right? It's a unit of performance per dollar. And then I, I think we have to add a temporal aspect to that because there is a cost associated with delay, especially in the digital world. So to me today, value is performance divided by cost divided by schedule. And that schedule piece is really important because there's still a trend, even though we have these big examples of Kessel Run and, and Platform One and Kobayashi Maru, there's still a lot of people that are like, I'm developing harder, more complex, more big brain things. They take longer to deliver. And that's just a fallacy. If you look at all the major tech companies today, they're able to deliver multiple times a day on really complex problems. So just because you're building something more complex doesn't stop you from releasing daily. That's a total fallacy. And forcing everybody to get to a point where you deliver or you don't get funding. That's something that I would really like to see. So if if we just focused on the Dora metrics and somebody has to go up before a growth board every quarter, sorry, I keep saying growth board. One of the, we've proposed an operating model for DevOps. We call it our DevOps operating model from Rise 8. That's like, how can you do DevOps, but still meet the intent of JSIDs, PPBD, and DAS? So we, we align all of these different structures. We think accountability and transparency is really important. And I think a lot of the pushback we've seen from Congress and, and certain layers of the Pentagon is because there's a lot of people that are trying to play fast and loose. Candidly, they are trying to avoid transparency and avoid accountability. And a lot of them, frankly, also don't quite know what they're doing and they're not actually achieving value. And so I think a good middle ground is to define a system where we can have even more transparency and even more accountability. 
I, I go that far. I wouldn't say we need the same that we had before. I think we need more. The faster and, and the more changes we're going to make to our system, we need more accountability, more transparency. So we do that through a growth board, similar to what in the VC model. And at different layers of the organization, you might have a growth board monthly, then a portfolio might have quarterly growth boards and a program or a PEO might have an annual growth board. And I actually want to make it so that your funding is not guaranteed. This is the hard part. This would actually require policy changes. It's the only thing in our framework that we recommend that requires a policy change, which is entitlement funding. A lot of people in this community have gotten lean startup was their introduction to uh, this kind of model of thinking. And in the startup way, Eric Reese talks about his work with enterprises. And he talks about using growth boards in this way. But he says one of the most dangerous things in an organization is entitlement funding. It doesn't matter what you do. If an organization is entitled to their funding, they won't change. And so if we, we have to create a system where it says you're going to go before a quarterly growth board and you're expected to have made deliveries between the last growth board and this growth board. And not only have you made deliveries, but those deliveries made a difference to the warfighter and actually defining what we expect those to be. And then you have to go answer to that. It's not, did I meet a specification in development? I haven't deployed anything. It's no kidding. The warfighter's time to process a target went down by 10%. I get my funding. Or it went down by five and I have to explain why it didn't go by 10 and, and see if they'll give me all my money. And that's where we have these like pivot or persevere moments. I'm really glad you're bringing up the the budget process there as one of the things that kind of needs to change because that's exactly right. The way that we do budgeting, you kind of entitle programs to something and then they just persist in the budget and, and it gives them that ability to, to kind of maintain the status quo. Whereas what you're saying is something more like a portfolio budget account, which allows some kind of rerouting of money to the highest value end use, like in the year of execution. And unfortunately, the Air Force has tried that this year with their BA-6-3 and then all of that kind of consolidated consolidation that Roper and the Air Force was leading just got unpacked by the appropriations committees. And those are still bills. So we'll see what happens. But yeah, it seems like that whole point that you're bringing up is going to be, I think, the crux of the issue, how the Department of Defense deals with the oversight agencies in Congress and builds trust and builds what the 21st century version of accountability is, because it can't just be predicting control. It's got to be something closer to what you guys are envisioning. And so I think the metrics are really important. I just want to break these out. I think I hear like a few different metrics or methods of oversight. And so the first would be the DORA metrics, which indicate speed and stability. And those seem to be process metrics, like how frequently are you doing something? It's not really saying, am I getting any value out of this? It's just, have you been able to do something consistently? So that's one set of metrics. And then there's another set of metrics I think you guys were talking about, like work units, where I'm able to save this much cost per targeting or this much cost per, for Kessel Run, right, with the tanker, you actually had a nice situation where you could say the planning, I was able to save $300 million or however many, like one tanker trip per unit of time, and this saves us this much money. So here's our ROI, but not all outcomes are amenable to that. And then you have this other kind of like third layer, which is the growth boards, which is this kind of organizational accountability structure that where you have people, supposedly like knowledgeable people who know the context of the technology and the requirements, who are evaluating what was actually done to see whether you are actually achieving this value. And so if you can't prove it through your work units, then you prove it through that more subjective human in the loop, context in the loop accountability structure. And then that gives 
more credence to like your speed and stability metrics, the Dora metrics, as if you're actually delivering, you know, value from a subjective viewpoint and you're doing it in that way, then you're doing pretty well. And so do you think that this kind of structure and the information it produces can replace the APB style version of the world? Is that the crux of the issue here? What kinds of metrics and insight can we give such that we can break that last barrier, which is the ability to move fast with these growth boards and move resources to where it makes sense? One starting point there is you should transition from funding specific products or specific problems to start funding teams. If you have teams in place, then you have the flexibility for these growth boards to actually take off. But for the growth boards to take off, you're going to have data inside your applications that give the decision makers on the growth board enough data to ensure that the team is doing the right thing. So if you can get those two pillars in place, you can straddle the fence between making sure that you have uh, a structure that's flexible enough to be able to actually, the growth boards actually mean something because you can pivot a team away from, oh, you were going to try to solve this problem, but it's just not working out. Now I want you to solve this because we have the flexibility within the contract because it's just a services uh, based team and not a team tied or anchored to a specific problem, which is going to require a contract mod. And on top of it, that team produces data on a continuous basis. So you can have that transparency. It's open to anyone like, hey, this is what this is the data that I'm producing at my team level. This is the data that's produced at the other layers of the technical stack. And everyone has that information so they can make informed decisions on what needs to be invested and where, where your resources should go. Yeah, and I think one thing I would say, you fund teams and problems, which you implied, right? And the, the problem that you are solving has some sort of objective. So that objective becomes the thing that you get measured against in a growth board. I think one important thing to know about the Dora metrics, again, she uses data science to create all sorts of predictive constructs. Those five metrics that I gave are predictive of organizational performance. But what's interesting is though, even though Dora doesn't actually go after any value metrics, which makes sense because you can't really com cross compare value metrics across companies, usually even across teams, especially in the DOD, you mentioned Tanker Planner. How do I compare that to lives saved because of reducing error rates of bombs? Like, how do you compare those two things? You can't really but they have found that organizations consistently with, with just like highly predictive relationships. If, if you read the report, it's very interesting. And they wrote a book about it called Accelerate as well, which dives even deeper into the data. But it shows that it is in fact predictive of organizational performance in terms of organizations meeting their or exceeding their goals. They're four times as likely to meet or exceed their value goals. And then underneath those, there's I think 26 key capabilities so if you're noticing a problem in lead time, you can walk back and look like, is the team investing in automated testing? Have we created fast change approval mechanisms? There's all these things you can trace back to, but the, the Pentagon and the Congress should not be looking at team velocity. That's ridiculous. But we're starting to do that, by the way, and we're starting to put things like velocity and story points on contract. Ridiculous. It's whose line is it anyways? I always say the stories are made up and the points don't matter. That's like <laughs> it really is. And the idea there is we should be putting objectives on contract and trying to get after those objectives. And then you said another thing, Matt, that was really important uh, that I forgot to mention, which is Eric Reese has this line in his book when he's talking about growth boards for an early stage product versus a late stage product. And he said, it's like planting an acorn. And when it sprouts, you yell at it that it's not a mighty oak. And so you stop watering it. When a product's first starting, you should be looking at different metrics and different thresholds. So we actually aligned our growth boards to milestones. 
So going back to, we've created this model where it aligns very much with a tailored acquisition model. And we have a kickoff growth board, a launch growth board, and then a like an MVP continual quarterly growth board. So actually milestone C happens every quarter. We keep going into this milestone C type review. And uh, that's really powerful because it allows the accountability to keep going out into the out years. A lot of times post milestone C, and it makes sense because post milestone C is technically sustainment, but in software is never done. If we're going to say software is never done, then we can't have a milestone C and be done. We have to keep doing that over and over again. I'm saying those terms loosely, by the way, I don't want people to freak out. They're like milestone reviews. Oh my God, we can't do those. You're right. We can't, not the way that they currently exist. So we replace those with different kinds of growth boards. But at a kickoff growth board, I'm going to tell the team the learning that I expect them to come back to me with. I want you to come back to me with data. What did the users say? How much money do you think it's going to take to solve this problem? Which aligns very closely with an analysis of alternatives, right? So like all of these things that we've built into our DevOps model allows you to meet the intent of the DAS. I just wanted, I wanted to pivot here and then and talk a, a little bit about like your company and, and your guys' journey. So you guys were in government, you were both uniformed officers, right? And then you guys transferred and now you started Rise8, which is a consulting and coding company. So can you talk a little bit about Rise8 and what's your thesis? Like what, what drove you to make that decision to innovate from the outside rather than from continuing to innovate from the inside? Yeah, I saw this ground shift happening in inside the government, or at least I thought I did. I might offer some commentary on where I think that is now, but I felt like a lot of the problem people were running into is they couldn't get access to vendors that had the right combination of Silicon Valley savvy and DOD domain expertise. And I felt like after everything that we had done, we had a very unique combination that we needed to spread elsewhere. And when you go back to, we talked about the personnel system or the org uh, changes that would be required is it's hard to move people the way that you need to spread this change. And so for me, I thought I could have a much bigger impact coming out onto this side and working with multiple programs, as long as the government continued to have these change agents that were just willing to really, you know, dig in and do things differently. I do want to be clear about that. That's the most important ingredient, that government change agent. And so our position, my theory was, I want to help digital change agents in the government overcome their bureaucracy so that they can deliver valuable software continuously that users love. And so that, that's why I created Rise8, help people overcome bureaucracy. We have all these plays, all these lessons learned from Kessel Run, and it's not enough to just put out a playbook. And one of the things that's at the core of Rise8 is pairing. We pair on everything, right? We'll come in and pair software developers, software designers, um, product managers, but then we'll also pair at leadership levels. So we can teach you how to implement things like these metrics we've been talking about, growth boards, because reading about them and doing them, I can tell you horror stories about the number. So we actually implemented that. All the growth board stuff that I talked about, we implemented that at Kessel Run. And when some people at Kessel Run hear me say that, they laugh because they're like, we didn't really implement it. It was horrible. Like we, we, we had huge, huge failures. And we learned a lot from those failures. And, and by the time I left, we were doing functional growth boards that were working well and getting after the outcomes that we want to. And since I've left, Kessel Run's just blown up there really on a growth trajectory that's amazing. I don't want people to have to relearn all those lessons. And at the same time, every time you fail, the bureaucracy has one more excuse to shut you down. So in a lot of ways, I think Kessel Run's hard to replicate because of luck. And we want to take the luck out of the equation and help people by pairing with them to overcome the bureaucracy and make a difference in the DoD. 
yeah, you guys have a ton of just amazing material that's just like really insightful and how to not necessarily hack that system, but <laughs> how to get through in an innovative way. Matt, did you have anything to add on that? I always have this joke of who does the DOD go out and contract for and to build an airplane? They, they contract with an airplane company. Who does the <laughs> DOD go out and contract for software? They go with an airplane company. And I really wanted to see what a new industry base for software within DOD and the transformation that needs to happen. What needs to be disrupted in that paradigm and what needs to be disrupted is the industry base. So you really have to have change agents on the industry side as well to come up and create companies or maybe a set of like-minded companies that are the brand name for software. So the change agents with inside the DOD have other options to go to besides just the common players. So if you can do that, then you really create a better ecosystem for everyone because optionality is always a good thing. And then wanting to have that mindset of, hey, we've been there before, we have the scars to prove it is something that not a lot of people can say. And I really want, I've always been like a player coach mentality. So like, how can we help do and co-create with people, but also teach them the lessons that we learned. And that's like my, my mindset is I'm here to help you do better at your job. And that is the number one thing, not profits, not anything like that. As long as we can make you better at your job, the secondary impacts of the, the greatness that we know will happen will occur. Yeah, I'm glad you guys use what I would almost frame as like the apprenticeship model because it seems like we almost have this kind of assembly line mentality to people growth. And it's just, you almost have to go back to that older, like medieval way during the Renaissance or whatever, where it seems like people are like literally paired together and they learn on the job doing. So glad to hear that. I, I wanted to wrap up with you guys and talk a little bit about advanced battle management system, which is like the hot topic, one of the Air Force's top modernization priorities and interlinks with the rest of the services in terms of battle command and control. So can you just talk a little bit about advanced battle management system and then how your company is looking to help out that program? Go for it. Yeah. One of the areas that we noticed early on in ABMS is they're taking a very similar approach to Kessel Run and Kobayashi Maru and they are using platform one and they're bringing in all of these capabilities. And so they're doing a little bit of the organic, like you see at Kessel Run and Kobayashi Maru, but they're also doing a lot of outsourcing, sorry, buying commercial solutions, which again, I don't disagree with. I think there are some really good candidates and the pace that they're moving at, uh, we can't just greenfield everything and, and build everything from scratch guts. But that creates a unique problem that you didn't see as much of, at least, at Kessel Run and Kobayashi Maru. One, the pace of growth is is astronomical. At Kessel Run, we, we started one team and then five teams and then 10 teams and then went up to 15 and like pretty predictable scaling pattern. And we use the lessons learned from the first team for the next five and that five for the next five. So you, you slowly grow in this kind of fractal pattern. But when you are buying solutions, you don't have to go quite as slow. And so they didn't. But when you scale faster like that, it brings on this whole new set of problems, which is how do you make sure that one, before you even make your decisions of what to buy, you're like making good intake decisions. And then you have all of these people coming on at once. Some are commercials, some are this kind of mix, this hybrid of things that were built by DARPA in coordination with contractors. And then you have Greenfield GOTS products. 
they're all at different levels of maturity and we've got to onboard them all to platform one. So we saw that as a unique challenge as well. And then how do you get all of these capabilities now aligned to the same objective, which we've spent a lot of time talking about now. It's like, we should have this objective. We are coming on board with ABMS. We did some initial work with them as well, building out what should those objectives be. We used the dynamic targeting mission thread, built out a value stream map, did some domain-driven design to break that problem down. What's out in the field today? What do we need to build? Where are the gaps? And then as we're onboarding these solutions, then helping them onboard to platform one and make sure they're all aligned towards that common goal. So setting up the growth board framework, implementing the Rise 8 uh, DevOps model, all of these types of activities that we've been talking about is, is really, they've got the, that ground level solved of building products. Now, how do we bring all those products together in a portfolio, allocate resources to them properly, provide transparency and accountability and metrics and make sure that we achieve the, the mission goals. So it's a really difficult problem. It's a really great opportunity, but at the same time, it, it's, this is like, somebody told me, Brian, you keep talking about digital transformation. Like that phase is past. We've we got the digital transformation piece. We're now at a point where we have to figure out how to scale that. And we have to figure out how to keep iterating and continuously improving. So that's the lessons that we're bringing into ABMS is like, how do you take this to the next step now? How do you bring all these things together and create a real system of systems? Yeah, I read, uh, like many people did, the GAO report that came out, I think, in April of ABMS. And like it screamed the Congress, the stakeholders don't have context into what actual problems that they are going to solve at the very beginning. And what is that strategy around trying to solve those problems? I think it, it's a really unique opportunity to provide that context, start with the single mission thread, gain momentum that, yes, we have started to move the needle on dynamic targeting because that's the mission threat that the government is going after. And if as soon as you start to show those wins and show that this process and this new digital way of working can actually produce value at you know the end user level, then that flywheel is going to start to pick up steam and really take off. So the next step is, hey, we now have a good way of working. We now have behaviors that like enforce that way of working from either growth boards or making sure all the applications are reporting their performance metrics or whatever those non-functional requirements are. So you can really do this in a repeatable process. And it's all about making, taking that complex problem and dissecting it down into simple achievable steps. And if you do that day in and day out, you're going to really create, you know, something magical with inside ABMS. And I think that is a great opportunity to really get your teeth dirty. And there's not a many opportunities in someone's career to take on that level of enterprise. So it's going to be really exciting for the next couple of years. Yeah. And tying this back into an earlier point we made, I think highlighting this GFE conversation and the, the tech stack is you know, ABMS went with the strategy, which is have a GFE tech stack that you provide. And I think that's so crucial. It could be platform one, it could be Kessel Run platform, Kobayashi Maru platform. And frankly, you, you wouldn't have to put all of your capabilities on the same platform to achieve all domain command and control. It's one strategy, I think, and it's a strategy that works. But the really important thing there is that you choose a platform or you be multi-platform. And then from there, you have these four things that I laid out that we're providing for ABMS that all programs should be thinking about is, okay, I have this GFE tech stack that I can deploy capabilities on. I now need to do intake, onboarding, alignment, and measurement. 
So the easiest way to break it down is like, how do I decide what capabilities to bring into the ecosystem? How do I actually get them onboarded? And, and if it's government coders, that's a very different process. You're going to need to do some pairing, some training, get them up to speed on modern coding. If it's a vendor, it's much simpler in some ways, but they're now going to have to change their code. So even though you got rid of the, the need to have to train some digital airmen, now you have to get a contractor to change their code so that it can ride on this GFE platform because they already built it. And there's like all these interesting, unique challenges. And then I got everybody on board and now I got to get them all aligned to the same goal and integrating. And then now I actually have to go and do the value assessment. I got to measure that I actually produce the value that I said I was going to. So it's like easy for thing to a little acronym to break it down is intake, onboarding, alignment, and assessment. Yeah, it goes full circle with the initial part of this conversation when we were talking about owning that tech stack and sharing core services. That's what ABMS is doing with Platform One, and it's a beautiful thing, right? Everyone is going to have a common developer environment that gets provided to them, and that's like a barrier of entry. If you don't want to play inside that common developer environment that's going to be provided to you, you're not going to be able to play with an ABMS. And the reason for that is because they want to create these shared services. They want to create consistency with inside their portfolio because the secondary benefits of that shared service and consistency is the only way you're going to be able to tackle this complex system to system challenge that they're going after to try to build. So I think it's a really good strategy. And the common saying goes, the sh- a, sh- a good strategy is, is only as good as your ability to implement it. So we're here to just help them implement that good strategy. Yeah, it seems like uh, you guys are like ABMS is almost hearkening back to an older way of doing programs, right? Like the Polaris a special projects office, they had a ton of in-house people that were helping orchestrate the program that was decomposed across components. But then they had Ramo Woolridge as a systems integrator who didn't actually, wasn't like the airframe prime, but it helped orchestrate at the top level what would happen and help the government achieve its end of owning this tech stack and disaggregating the platform and proceeding incrementally. So one thing that you guys are doing is help orchestrate that from a systems level. But then the second thing is actually like, safeguarding ABMS from what I would call like the oversight complex, which GAO didn't actually make it to that, to those initial demonstrations, but then they still wrote a very negative report (laughs) that you were talking about that they didn't do all these life cycle cost estimates, affordability analysis, like these very waterfall type questions, but they weren't really, it seemed like looking at the value and we needed something. I think you guys are trying to bring that out. Like we need the metrics, but we also need to show the value in context so that they understand what is being done and that it's a good use of taxpayers' funds because just a week ago, I think the Senate Appropriations Committee recommended taking out like 31% of ABMS's funding for the next year. And then it it was actually plussing up the legacy J stars saying, you guys need to first demonstrate like at this minimum level of capability, all this stuff for ABMS before I can give you money. But if, if you don't give me money, how am I going to get it, be able to like demonstrate these things for you? And even when I do demonstrations, you don't show up. So, <laughs> I think the important lesson here, though, is in fairness to the GAO, or maybe that's not even the right way to say it, is, yeah, but the government didn't do all those things, the program office. We're saying, we've been saying this whole time, that doesn't mean we should go do all those things, but we have to do something. And I think the lesson here is you've got to get ahead of this story early on, this value story. 
what the value you're aiming at is, how you're going to achieve it, and more importantly, the transparency you're going to provide and the accountability mechanisms you're going to provide. ABMS, I think, did actually a good job of talking about the value and even demonstrating the value, but it wasn't done, as you said, in the right context for those decision makers to understand. Like, how does this relate to the old way that I do business? How does it meet the intent of all of these aspects? And so I think more and more you're going to see the rise of the, it's going to be really important when you look at DOD leaders in the software community, whether that's material leaders becoming software leaders or whatever, they're people that can have a foot on both sides of the door when it comes to software and value and DOD and acquisitions. I wrote an article probably like a year and a half ago talking about this future software leader. I said, everybody is moving towards saying, oh, future software leaders won't have DAU training. And I said, there's not a software leader in my mind that wasn't first a material leader. You can't under, you, you can't revolutionize a system without understanding the system. I think it's sad because I'm going to mention somebody that's gone now, but I didn't stay in. There are people that need to stay in and I hope they stay in. So I don't recommend everybody get out and go do what I did, but especially the higher ranking individuals that are starting to get this. So Lieutenant Colonel Jeremiah Sanders, the Air Force letting him leave. And I say letting him because they had an opportunity to keep him, at least I think so, before went that opportunity. When you lose people like that, the DOD just views that as like one random person, like, oh, who's Jeremiah Sanders? That has huge far-reaching implications. That is the MVP. <laughs> that was the most valuable person in the Air Force in my mind in terms of having a foot on both sides of the door and being able to navigate both of those communities. Peter Thiel calls them the, the insider-outsider. They can be both an insider and an outsider in many different tribes. And so more and more, we're going to need those people to tell the story because to your point, as, as much as it is frustrating to me that the DOD would go and kill a program like that, at the same time, I feel like I can't blame them. Like we need those people that can tell both stories. Brian Kroger, Matt Nelson, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Thank you. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time. Thank you.